Sedgwick County Commissioner Lacey Cruz lives in the poorest zip code in the state of Kansas. Immense challenges of homelessness as well as mental illness and substance abuse are visible from her front porch. She's convinced Sedgwick County and the city of Wichita can do a better job marshalling resources to take on these complex problems, especially with the availability of federal COVID-19 recovering funding. Today, Commissioner Cruz joins us to delve into her sense of these daunting issues and to appraise potential solutions. Commissioner, welcome to the Kansas Reflector podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for taking time out of your busy day. All right. To begin with, Commissioner Cruz, could you start by kind of helping us visualize the landscape of your zip code, 67214 in Wichita? Sure. Um... 67214 is located um, sort of in the metro area of Wichita, Kansas. Um, you know, the current unemployment level of 67214 uh, is 6.8, which is higher than any current county unemployment level of 5.3. Um, so we have um, the, uh, the makeup of our, um, our zip code is, um, if you look at the percentages, and I'm kind of looking at some old data here, but um, we have a heavy African-American um, population. We have a heavy Hispanic population. Um, we have about 47% of the zip code is African-American, 24% is about uh, is Hispanic and 20% is white. So if you look at, we have uh, a large population of people of color that are represented in this neighborhood. Um, a portion of this neighborhood um, back in the day, um, it's kind of crazy to think about, but I live um, in a very historic home. Um, and so when, this, when the city was founded, um, back around, you know, eight in the 1800s, my house was built in 1896. These houses were built for very wealthy people. Um, the wealthiest people in this, this city built the homes um, where this zip code resides right now. And so to see how the years have progressed, all of the things that have happened over the years, when you talk about redlining, um, when you talk about um, dis uh, the, the, the divestment of, um, neighborhoods. Um, this is one of them. On the daily, I see a number of folks walking up and down my street. Um, I now live on a bus line. I can literally see the bus stop from my house. Um, it is, it's a very different way of living than I, than I lived before. I kind of lived in a suburb um, and I came from a very small town. So coming from a small town, living in a suburb here in, in um, a very large city in Kansas and now living really in the heart um, of Midtown, um, it's been it's been a transition, but I feel like, you know, I was this I wasn't even looking for a house when I found this house. I, I like to say this house found me, um, and so there was a reason why I, I moved where I moved. And you know, it might not be all that clear yet, but working in in uh, to solve these complex problems and putting myself smack dab within the middle of them really gives me. Um, some real life experience um, just by living where I live. Mm -hmm. Well, clearly homelessness can be considered a humanitarian crisis. Its tentacles extend to mental health and substance abuse. 
it's a strain on police, fire, jail resources. Taxpayers get hit there, but also the broader economy is weakened with so many people, I would think, in the community cannot find, <clears throat> excuse me, an affordable, safe place to live. Do you think maybe you could touch on the personal experience, your personal family history, and how it, it informs your advocacy here? Sure. You know, I think when we talk about homelessness, I think... Um, we also have to really understand and recognize that homelessness oftentimes is a visualization of mental, of mental health. Um, it's a visualization of um, addiction, um, can oftentimes be from domestic violence. Um, so homelessness in itself is not just folks who are homeless. They are sometimes very sick individuals who have not received care or treatment um, for an underlying condition or for an, an addiction. And so um, looking back in, in my history, um, it kind of starts off with my dad. So my dad as a 12 year old kid um, was at school one day and a police officer comes into his classroom. And my dad, again, as a 12 year old kid um, was told that his dad was no longer with us um, because my grandfather um, shot himself in the head in the cemetery where he's buried. Um, about 10 years later, my uncle, my dad's youngest brother, shot himself in the stomach in my parents' living room. And so um, my dad has um, had some significant trauma that has happened in his life. He marries my mom. They are married for 10 years. They have three kids. I am the youngest um, my parents divorced when I was four years old. My mother left me with my dad, who was an alcoholic at the time, as a four-year-old kid. Um, that was, I've always sort of felt an, a, a bit of an abandonment from my mother because she left me with the alcoholic man that she divorced and moved my two older brothers to Topeka. Um, you know, my dad had, uh, he married a woman who I remember one day as, as a young kid in the bathroom, she blew uh, marijuana smoke in my face. Um, you know, just growing up in, in a very tumultuous time um, with a father who was addicted to alcohol. Later in life, he was addicted to meth. Um, you know, there was one stint that he um, was homeless, but my dad was gone for a very long time. He wasn't around at all. Um, so my mother kind of came back into the picture, um, but to make a long story short, you know, the things that have happened in my life with my dad have really sort of cemented um, just this personal anguish that drives me to help others not to have to experience the same thing. So as a young girl growing up, like, can I, you know, what can I do to, um, help people not have to experience the same things that I have experienced. I um, just most recently, um, I have I have two daughters that I'm raising on my own because my ex-husband is addicted to meth and he is an absent father. So what's happening with me, what happened with me as a kid is now happening to my own two daughters. And it is heartbreaking to say the least. Um, you know, walking outside of my front porch and seeing all the folks that are yelling at each other or, you know, picking through my trash or, you know, it's just, we can live a better life than this. And there are people out there that 
can, um, there are options and there are services, um, but we just have to, we have to make it, make people aware of what's happening. Um, and I feel like that's really my drive. The things that have happened to me in my life are really the driving factor as to why this is important to me, just because I don't want others to experience what I'm experiencing or what I have experienced. What you're saying is certainly profound. And, and I don't think it's, it's, it's not the average existence of a child. Uh, and I would actually say after covering politics for so long that you bring an unusual perspective of empathy and experience to the political equation that I, I think sometimes politicians have difficulty relating to the challenges of others, uh, unlike themselves. So one other, one other point before we get to uh, how, how you're going to fix all this. <laughs> uh, uh, so is it to help people understand homelessness and the, the, the government and nonprofit response? I, I think you compared it to an overflowing bathtub. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, so I, I have been doing a lot of research and listening to some, um, some really renowned experts, um, Dame Louise Casey, she's the chair of the Institute of Global Homelessness, and she's really the one who came up with this, like it's an overflowing bathtub. So when you walk in a room and the bathtub is overflowing, what do you do? You turn off the faucet, right? You, you prevent the problem from getting any bigger. And um, quite frankly, this analogy is, um, are we turning off the faucet? Are we, are we preventing the problem from getting any bigger? And right now what we're doing, um, and we have a lot of really great people doing a lot of really good things. And so I don't want to discount what's, what's been happening, but I working in government for, you know, three years now, right. Not a lot, not a lot of time, but boy, I soak up a lot. And I've been doing a lot of research around this, this complex system is that we are perpetually just alleviating the immediate problem. So someone's hungry, we give them food. Someone needs a place to sleep, we give them a bed for the night. Um, but are we really sort of moving toward a system-wide change? And I would have to say that currently we are just simply maintaining a system that isn't moving the needle toward eliminating uh, the problem. And I hope that we can sort of have a system-wide discussion around how this, how the system itself needs to change uh, to move the needle in the right direction. I think I understand what you mean by sort of the immediate uh, remedy being thrown out there. I, I could be in driving in traffic and somebody standing there with a sign that says homeless, any, anything will help. And I give them a few dollars, five bucks, whatever. And I, I don't think I'm fixing any problems. You know, uh -huh. uh, maybe it makes me feel better. Uh, but <clears throat> so when you look at the Wichita City Council, you're on the Sedgwick County Commission. The commission has a role in this, too. They're all working to spend millions of dollars in federal emergency funding tied to COVID. Uh, some of it's going to go to homelessness, I have a sense. And uh, the stakes are high here, I would presume. It's perhaps a once in a lifetime infusion of dollars. Uh -huh. Yeah. So so let's talk about, you know, how to make a lasting impact on homelessness in Cedric County and Wichita, what would you like to do? Well, I'd really like to focus on, um, we call it going upstream, right? Getting people before they fall into the river. Um, and so how do we do that? Well, 
folks that are on the street currently, um, you know, some, some folks are going to be on the streets forever. There is a guy who he, he, that's how he lives. And you know what, if he wants to live like that, that's his prerogative. He can live like that. But there are those who um, don't have the mental capacity or are addicted to something that is keeping them in this cycle. And so we have to understand the significant problems that people have, and we have to make sure that we're funding those kinds of things. So one win that we did get just through the budget cycle of Sedgwick County is um, a crisis calm care expansion. Um, so that will provide more beds, that will provide more space and resources for those suffering from substance uh, misuse disorders. Um, and then we have to, um, when it comes to the federal dollars that are here, another win that we got through the CARES funds was um, the 316 hotel was converted into a per permanent supportive housing um, option for uh, folks experiencing homelessness. So what that means is we, um, 54 hotel rooms were converted into apartments, 300 square feet, um, that will provide supportive services for those who are just sort of getting off the streets. So they can live there as long as they want, but the idea is for them to go through the system and receive those supportive services, like um, if they need medication appointments or psychiatry appointments or a job placement or anything that they need, the supportive service of where they're living is going to help. So that's something that we need to do with ARPA. We, uh, the, the American Rescue Plan funds. Can we create more housing options? Right now, we are really struggling for an affordable quality place for people to live. And so if there's an opportunity to, to convert other hotels that aren't in use or, or convert other apartment buildings, or that's, that's an idea. We need to look into that. Could you just pause right there? Do you have a sense of the unmet need in terms of, you're talking about more motels? I think that's an excellent idea. Uh, do you have a sense of the unmet need, like the, the census of it? The census of it? Yeah. No, I did have that. Um, <clears throat> no, I don't have that for right now. No, I just got to make sure that right here, you noting that we're talking about something like she's looking for a number, so... Just deal with that. Um, well, <clears throat> so. Is it in the hundreds? You think? Well, currently there's only around 7,000 um, housing units that are affordable in, in Wichita, Kansas, according to the um, housing context and case studies that was prepared for the city of Wichita by development strategies. Um, so it, an interesting fact around our housing market here in, here in Wichita is that, um, and this kind of goes to wages. So I'm kind of jumping around a little bit, but um, so for based on um, HUD's fair market rent for our region, mm -hmm. fair market rent would be 850 bucks. Okay. A worker must earn a bare minimum of $17 an hour to afford a two bedroom unit of safe and decent quality plus utilities. So for example, the average wage of a grocery worker store clerk is 11 bucks an hour for a home health aid, it's, it's 12 bucks an hour. So considering again, the um, minimum wage in Wichita to afford a quality two bedroom, $850 a month apartment, someone would have to work at those 
minimum wage rates of $11 or $12 an hour, they would have to work up uh, 118 hours to afford an 852 bedroom unit of safe and decent quality. So yeah. first of all, we're not providing those wages, but then if you're homeless, where are you going to go? Cause you can't go right into an 850 unit um, apartment. So when we're talking about um, providing um, housing for a, for someone who is capable of, of affording that um, they're not there. Second of all, um, someone who is homeless, you can't just house your way out of homelessness because someone who's been on the streets for a while, they might not know how to live in an apartment. So you have to help them understand that, um, how, to, how to keep it clean, how to pay your bills. Um, there's a lot of things that go into helping someone get out of homelessness. There was a story I heard that, um, you know, someone got into an apartment and they they poked a hole in the wall to see their friend next door, you know, cause they weren't used to living in, in an apartment. And so you have to, again, go back to those underlying issues, mental health and substance mis misuse. Mm -hmm. And are we, are we really treating those? And that's what those supportive housing units, that's what they offer. So that's one solution is more supportive housing. Do you think there's political momentum for that kind of idea? If there's a sense that this uh, first one, the 54 room one is working? So it just opened. So we, um, we know across the country, these kinds of places work. Uh, we don't really have any specific data for the one that just opened because it literally opened like two weeks ago. Um, but I have faith and I'm kind of a dreamer that I feel like, you know, you have to believe that something's going to happen and you have to make sure um, that, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a big proponent of positive thinking and I don't live my life any other way. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that it's going to work because I just think it's gonna work. Skipping around on solution ideas, what about the criminal justice system? Uh, you, you, your thoughts about that, maybe just things that haven't been considered by the general public, you know, just something as simple as when somebody is released from jail, uh, how might that impact homelessness? So another, another idea, um, like down in Oklahoma City, they have what's called a diversion hub. Um, so reserving the space in our jail for really bad individuals, those who need to be locked up should be locked up. But those who are addicted to a drug and are committing crimes because they have an addiction, um, let's treat the addiction. Um, and we need to stop criminalizing addiction and stop criminalizing mental health and getting them right, getting, pulling them, getting them in upstream before they jump into the criminal justice system. We need to get them into a psychiatry appointment, get them into a mental health worker, get them into medications that will help them deal with the, the underlying conditions so that they don't assault police officers or so they, they don't, um, rob a, a store or whatever crimes that they commit because of mental illness or substance misuse, let's treat those underlying conditions um, before they get into our criminal justice system because we need rehabilitation rather than punishment. And I think our, our criminal justice system for a very long time, that's been the mentality. And luckily here we have um, a sheriff and a district attorney who wholeheartedly believe in this philosophy. Um, but 
a system that has been working a certain way for years is not going to change overnight. And it's slow incremental changes like um, diverting people from jail into um, you know, a detox facility, which we do have, um, that those, it's those kinds of things, um, that will move the needle. And so in two weeks, um, I'll, I'm going down to Oklahoma to, um, look at their diversion hub, um, and see kind of how they operate down there. Um, that would be one idea that we could bring back here. Yeah. One stat I read about possibly the Cedric County jail, but maybe, 70%, three-fourths of the individuals there have a substance abuse problem. Maybe mm -hmm. a third have a diagnosed mental health disorder. Mm -hmm. And that's probably reflecting uh, what's going on in other, you know, jails of some size, Topeka, mm -hmm. you know, Johnson County, that kind of thing. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, when you have, when you have 70% of people in your jail who have an under, like who have a substance use disorder, when they get out of jail, if they, if you don't treat their substance use issue, they're just going to go right back into it. I mean, recidivism rates are super high. I think it's like 60% after two years. Um, and so, you know, we've, we've got a, you know, set measurable goals that we can, we can strive toward, um, and then start knocking, you know, knocking all those goals off. Right. I mean, if we have, um, if we want to reduce the number of people with substance abuse in our jail by, I don't know, 10%, 20%, like what are those goals that we want to meet? We have to determine that. Yeah. I think set those goals and, and get some leverage behind it. I, I think about homeless kids, uh, volunteered in elementary school. And I know you don't know who they are, but you know, kids in the school are, are homeless. Somebody is so, but those, that school can be a lifeline for a child, uh, mm -hmm. who's, who's homeless, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. We have, um, we have some, some programs that are um, in our schools right now. We have caseworkers um, that provide therapy appointments in schools. I think there's in about 22 schools right now. Um, if we could have them in every single school, because we know that mental health um, does not have a socioeconomic boundary. It doesn't have a color or a culture boundary. Um, it really touches every single person. Um, and, you know, that that's, that's a great program that needs to be expanded. And I think Cedric County has, you know, what, I don't know, maybe a hundred million dollars out of the uh, COVID money that came into the county, something like that. Mm -hmm. I wonder if part of it could be dedicated to building career pathways for the home. So, so, so maybe they go to the 54 uh, apartment hotel, former hotel, and then they're getting services. There, there needs to be another step to a job and and, uh, you know, a livable wage. So, you know, ideally they become independent and, and, and find that home, that place for themselves. What I, about, what about some of that investment? Yeah. So a, a couple of the plans that we've talked about, um, in the mental health and substance abuse coalition. And, um, the tricky thing about ARPA is figuring out what exactly the, the funds can be used for. So, um, we, we hired a consultant here with O'Brien's to help us determine, um, so that we're in compliance with federal rules and regulations around how this money can be spent. Um, luckily, with Wit O'Brien's, we've had um, a uh, a woman who's worked at HUD and so understands sort um, the homeless realm and is working to um, sort of take what the rules say about spending the money with the plan that we have developed. So the plan kind of goes like this. 
we had, um, I like to say the first win was the studios, 54 supportive units. Um, the second win we received and were able to accomplish was the expansion of the Crisis Calm Care Center. That's a $15 million investment going in somewhere, hopefully soon. Um, this, the, I think the third sort of win would be a social service hub, which is kind of what you're talking about. So the social service hub would um, really shorten that distance for someone to get on their feet. So. When you have someone suffering from mental illness or substance abuse, most times when they go to a service provider, they're given an appointment someplace else. Well, the problem is that people don't make those appointments. People don't have transportation to get where they need to go. And so by creating a social service hub, you would have all providers like a co-working space um, that you know have popped up all over this city. So each social service provider, homeless providers, um, workforce development folks, um, ComCare could have someone in there from a mental health perspective, SAC from a substance misuse perspective, um, driver's license recovery, um, maybe, maybe someone needs furniture, maybe someone needs, you know, whatever the case may be, we would have those people who do those kinds of things within walking distance of each other. So we'll just say for me, for example, so I, um, I need to get a driver's license because my, my purse was stolen or my ID was stolen. And so I need to get a driver's license, but I don't have the 30 bucks that, you know, it's going to take for me to get my, my ID. And I don't really even know how to do it. So, you know, maybe my caseworker takes me to um, a driver's license recovery specialist, and they help me apply for a new driver's license. And maybe that really entails, I have to find my birth certificate. So then I have to apply to the state for the birth certificate. You know, it's all those like barriers that most of us can just do on our own, but those who can't it really holds them back because a driver's license you need for all sorts of things. So you get your driver's license, then maybe they walk you to Workforce Development Center. Um, maybe it's WSU Tech with a, an education opportunity that you can, you know, get in eight weeks. And then, um, you know, maybe it's, you, you need a follow-up, you need a medication refill. So you, then they walk you to the next person. It's a warm handoff. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're not expecting someone to um, drive all over town to get these appointments and we're making it easy. It's called person-centered care, right? We're caring for the person who needs the care. We're not just as service providers, you know, doing things in our own little silos anymore. We're gonna break that down in a one hub, one-stop shop, you know, someone called it the starting point. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's one idea. The next idea would be, um, you know, that, um, Maybe there's a grocery store nearby, you know, maybe there's a, um, an outdoor shelter for those who um, aren't quite ready to, to get into housing, but they have a secured entrance and exit that they could sleep at night or hold their um, belongings or take a shower when they need to, or maybe they could um, have their medications in a secured spot. Uh, last week, I, I had an extra donut in my bag and I was driving down the street and so I pulled over and because um, there was a woman walking down the street with her, her shopping cart, just full of stuff, you know, and I could tell that um, she was homeless. And, you know, for me, um, I, I'm such a, I'm such like a, I'm, I'm a, I'm a very tactile learner. And, you know, one thing doing research around homelessness is you got to get on the streets 
and you really have to talk to the people, you know, and, and once you just talk to them, you'll understand why they're there. And then you'll find the solutions to help them. Now, this one woman, she, um, she had been on the streets for a year. And um, one of the things, you know, that she mentioned was she has some very serious health problems, um, but she is unable to keep her medications because they keep getting stolen. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one thing that would help her is if there was a place and I, um, it's like this check cashing places, right? Those horrible check cashing places that you just walk up and you say, Hey, I need, you know, 300 bucks. And then you spend $10,000, but could we create a place that people can walk into someone can help keep their medications safe and dispense their medications. And maybe that's part of the social service hub. Um, that's pretty simple. That's San Antonio's doing that. Um, these are all sorts of ideas. Now, whether that's a physical location or whether we have a church run that or um, whether we have, you know, um, a social service provider that's already somewhere close by doing that kind of thing. But that's serious because medication is a lifeline for a lot of folks. Um, and not only does it keep you mentally well, but it keeps you physically well. And if you're not either of those, then it's hard for you to really function. Um, Do you think the, you know, the, Wichita is, is the anchor of Sedgwick County, but there are other communities within Sedgwick County that, that you collectively represent. Do you think there's tension between the county commission and the city council on what to do about these problems? Uh, because it could be the rural county resident says, why should I pay for this? I don't live in Wichita, you know? Do you think there's a tension about the money and the, uh, the energy required to, to do some of this work? Um, certainly. Yeah. I mean, everybody has um, ideas around how money should be spent. And so I, I think it's, it's a really great idea to listen to all bits of the conversation because there's something to be, to be found in any conversation that you have. But what I will say to, um, you know, someone who is, um, we're already paying for people um, in one way, shape or form. Um, there is our Sedgwick County Jail is housing a lot of folks that Sedgwick County residents are paying for. Um, so we, we're already sort of shelling out that money. It's just, does the, should the money be shifted so that in the long term, the money that we're spending is reduced or reallocated to other programs that you know, could drive economic development or drive um, business retention or, or whatever the case may be, right? Um, maybe we could hire more EMS professionals or pay uh, fire, firefighters, firefighters more. Um, you know, just some stats really quickly. Mm -hmm. We had a high, high utilizers behavioral health study. Um, and so they took 516 patients that intersected between ComCare, government function, um, Event, uh, Ascension via Christi and SAC. Okay. What's SAC? So, uh, Substance Abuse Center of Kansas. Okay. And so those three entities, um, there was over the, the span of about three years for 516 individuals, um, $56 million of care delivered between those three years. 17 million was funded by public assistance or uncompensated care. So $17 million was already being spent on this type of service for individuals. 
one individual out of this 516 that was studied spent $750,000 in one year because they're in and out of the ER, they're in and out of Comcare, they're in and out of our jail, they're in and out of all of these places um, receiving services, but not receiving care that will help them heal. And that's where we have to focus our energy is if we're going to rehabilitate someone, can we keep them out of the system? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even if you, people can't be convinced that, that uh, reaching out to these folks is, is useful. Maybe the economic argument, the financial argument will sway them Mm because those numbers are astounding. Yeah, and we were just, uh, the sheriff and I were kind of thinking about doing uh, a high utilizer study of the criminal justice system. So could we take 200 individuals and from the moment somebody gets picked up by WPD to the moment they get dropped off at the Sedgwick County Jail, booking, community corrections, maybe they went to SAC, maybe they went to ComCare, now they're in the court system. What does it take for the judge's time, the clerk's time, everybody mm-hmm. that interacts with the criminal justice system? Um, I bet you we'd, we'd all be kind of surprised at how much money taxpayers are spending um, for folks that are like habitual um in and out of the system, right? It's just the cycle. They just keep cycling in and out of the system. Um, so hopefully we're gonna get that. And, and maybe that would be part of ARPA if we could fund a study like that, that kind of tells us. And listen, I'm like study after study after study that's funded. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of that. They do but tend am, to sit on shelves somewhere. Yeah, like the, um, oh yeah, we won't talk about that, but. <laughs> so I'm really not in favor of just doing studies to do studies. I, I think that's what I've learned over the past three years too, is just, we like to do some studies in government, but I think that this criminal justice one will be pretty beneficial to show us, um, especially when you have to speak to people in numbers and the economic side of it, right? I mean, money talks. So how can we get some hard and fast numbers that say, okay, here's what you're already paying taxpayer for someone to go mm-hmm. in and out of our criminal justice system. Here's what it costs. Cause it costs 73 plus dollars a day to house someone in our jail. The average length of stay in our jail is 39 days. Add that up. Before we close and I ask you for some concluding thoughts, I wondered if uh, you feel like people who are uh, uh, homeless or have experienced homeless are fully represented on the commissions and study groups and task forces that the, a city such as Wichita and Sutter County might have? So I think that we need to do a better job of, so I've asked, um, and a couple of people have asked, so I'm not the only one, have asked to put someone with lived experience on the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Coalition. I think that we should invite um, folks to serve on like the Mental Health Advisory Board. Um, Yeah, we need to incorporate people with lived experience on these boards um, because just like doing the groundwork, boots on the groundwork that I've been doing has really helped me understand from a, you know, individualistic, um, I, on the street, um, experience, cause that's really the only way to know how to help somebody is to really know that the real issues. Um, I've never been a fan of sitting, sitting on a, a high chair and looking down. Like I am, let me get my boots on the ground. Let me get my feet wet. Um, and really figure out how I can 
I, how I can help. Cause I, I don't know how to help if I don't really know the issue or really know the problem. I don't think anybody try to reform what's going on in courtrooms without talking to lawyers. All right. Uh, Commissioner Cruz, do you want to uh, sign us off and offer your concluding thoughts about uh, homelessness in Sudger County, Wichita, the issue in general? Yeah, I just, I really want to reiterate the fact that homelessness is a visual representation of mental illness, substance misuse, and violence, domestic violence, or, or part of our criminal justice system. It, it is a visual representation, so we can see it, but we have to think about mental illness and substance misuse and all those other things with it. Um, we can't just disperse a homeless population with white lines and expect for this problem to go away. We have to put tangible things um, in place with measurable goals, um, and we all have to be on the same page. Our homeless providers and all, us, all of our social service providers have got to, to start working together, which they are, but doing a better job of it in really tangible in tangible ways um, because we, we're doing a lot, but are we moving the needle? And that's my, that's my main question. Yes. Well, I want to thank our guest, Sedgwick County Commissioner Lacey Cruz. Your thoughts are very welcome here. I want to thank you for joining us on the Kansas Reflector podcast. I'm Tim Carpenter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.